I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's only one word that matters in business in the early days, and that is the word survival. Whilst you're alive, throw yourself 100% into whatever you do and make the best of this wonderful life that we all lead. Welcome to the Boom Podcast from Virgin Media Business. I'm Nikki Beatty and we're back for another episode, diving into the minds of world-class entrepreneurs, mavericks and innovators to unpick winning formulas and to find out what enables the most creative people in the world to think so differently. Throughout the series, we'll also be tracking the 2018 Voom competition, the UK and Ireland's most exciting pitch event, where businesses of all shapes and sizes can enter for the chance to win £1 million worth of prizes, publicity and support. Entries are open and voting is already underway, but there's still time to sign up and get involved. Later, we'll be hearing from previous Voom champion Toby McCartney, whose company, Macreba, wowed Richard Branson and the judges with a business that recycles waste plastic to create road surfaces. He'll be updating us on the company's story since winning the Voom title and sharing his competition tips for all those involved this year. So watch out for that. But first, in the studio today, I'm joined by two amazing entrepreneurs whose companies have disrupted markets with fresh angles on familiar products. My first guest is the founder and CEO of the urban cycling company Blaze. Their products include Blaze Burner and Laser Light, and they've brought innovation to the humble bike light with improvements for safety, design, and performance. Following huge support from the public on Kickstarter and venture capital funding, Blaze have received multiple awards and gained loyal customers in over 65 countries across the world. It's a brilliant success story. Wow. And I'm really glad to be joined by founder Emily Brooke. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Whilst Emily's company is all about hopping on your bike, our second guest is focused more on the recovery period. His company, Eve Sleep, has become a runaway success over the past three years, with the innovative Eve mattress taking the world by storm and helping people get a good night's sleep far and wide. And last year saw them launch an IPO on the London Stock Exchange AIM market with a staggering valuation of £140 million. Wow. Uh, welcome to Eve Sleep CEO and co-founder Yash Bagniewski. Hello to you. Hey. <laughs> so I wanted to start with a question for both of you, which is you've launched companies which are essentially challenger brands in existing old school markets, which I would imagine is an incredibly difficult thing to do. So what gave you the confidence to do that in the beginning? I'll come to you first, Emily. So I think for us, the, the laser light is a kind of, um, it's a radical innovation. It hadn't been done before. It's it's not a bike light, but it is also a bike light, but it's projecting lasers ahead of a bike um, for visibility is is brand new. Um, 
it was it's been a funny journey because yeah it's a bit of a boys club cycling but we're now we're not for cyclists we're for everybody else everybody who jumps on a bike so it's mobility getting people across the city we're going to talk much more about your products in a moment, but interesting to hear you say it's a bit of a boys' club, so you've penetrated that. What about you, Yash? What gave you the confidence? We were quite opportunistic with it. I had worked at a company called Groupon, and when I left, they were very focused on services, but they were starting to make the transition to selling products. And with some friends of mine, we thought, what products could we sort of sell on Groupon? And we looked for high-margin things that we could discount and things we could source locally so we didn't have to hold stock. And sort of strange thought process led us to a mattress deal, which we obviously didn't expect would sell so big. And on the first day, we sold 6,000 mattresses. It became the biggest uh, Groupon deal of all time. We did about $2 million in turnover and then very quickly just used Groupon to go into 18 countries with it. So it, it just sort of landed a bit by chance for us when we started, to be honest, back in 2011. And was this a particular mattress? When we started, it was a very generic product because we knew nothing about the industry, really. But that was 2011 under a different brand. And then we sort of spent a few years learning about the mattress industry, learning how the product changes from country to country, starting to build out a much sort of bigger team in terms of mattress development and research and technology. And then when we eventually had a sort of great product and, and good distribution network, we, we launched Eve, which was a sort of standalone brand. So, Emily, coming back to you, having confidence in your innovation or innovations, as the case may have been, was that key to getting going? Yeah, I mean, it's a daft idea, but I knew it was valuable. I knew it would help a cyclist be seen. I knew it should become a reality, but I didn't think it would be me to take it to market. And it wasn't until kind of uni put out a press, it was my university project, and uni put out a press release and it was on kind of every cycling blog as a concept in a couple of days. And that was the kind of first indication of actually, okay, maybe I'm not the only idiot that thinks this is a good idea. So courage of your convictions, you had confidence too then, Yesh, when you actually figured out that you had a special mattress. Was that the very beginning? Yeah, I mean, you know, like I say, it was it really all started with that, that Groupon deal. And then what we sort of started to understand over time was that it's such a generic, boring industry, mattresses, and that actually so much beautiful stuff happens in bed and that you could you could create a very emotional brand around it. And you could What's really... beautiful that happens in bed? Sex. Cuddling up with your partner, reading books to your kids, watching Netflix, you know, all sorts of stuff. <laughs> you tried. <laughs> but, but, you know, but mattresses are traditionally sort of marketed a bit like toilet paper, you know. They're sort of bland, they all look the same, they're very functional in their marketing. And we just thought it's a shame that no one, yeah, like I say, just talks about bed as a really beautiful and sort of inviting place. And, and so we brought in a very senior branding guy, my cousin, who was head of marketing at Channel 4 at the time to sort of help us build the brand. And, and that's, I think, really where everything, it sort of changed very much from being a sort of commoditized product into becoming a brand and then later a sleep brand. So did you have any background in the sleep industry or with mattresses in any way, shape or form before this? Not before. So our first mattress business was in 2011. Before that, no, no background in mattresses. But by the time we launched Eve, we'd been working on mattresses for about three and a half years. So what was your background before? I worked, I went, it's almost boring to say, I was a consultant for a couple of years. Um, I never know what that means. Do you know what that means? <laughs> I still don't know what it means. I, I mean, did it for two years. Yeah, but what did you do? And not not so much. Just kind of went <laughs> sort of bummed around, you know, a little bit. Um, and then I got introduced to these three German brothers called the Samuel Brothers, who um, they build internet companies. 25% of Europe's billion-dollar businesses were started by these three brothers. And at the time, they had a 
quite a small organization called Rocket Internet. It had about 40 people. Now they have about 40,000. So I was very lucky. I went to interview with them in Germany and it felt, I felt it was a sort of almost like hidden camera kind of thing. Within about 20 minutes, they said, look, we're going to give you half a million euros to go to Poland to build an online price comparison company. And I sort of thought it was a wind up. I thought, why not? So I handed in um, Accenture doing voluntary redundancy then. So I sort of handed in for that. As soon as I got that, I quickly joined the, the Samwas and then ended up working for them for three years on a few internet businesses, one of which was called Zalando, which is the biggest e-commerce business to come out of Europe. I think it's now worth about 12 billion euros. So I launched and ran that in the UK for them. And I also founded a company called City Deal with them, which which was bought by Groupon and sort of became Groupon, which just gave me the, the idea to start selling products on there. So, Emily, I don't, do you have a good bed? Um, maybe I'm missing the mattress. <laughs> it sounds like you don't have an Eve. Bed. There you I don't go. Even know. What do you sleep on? Do you even know? I know because it's, it's not my mate's place. So okay. it's like not my mattress. Okay. But is sleep important to you? Very important, yes. Because I think... People Who, who's are, it not important to? Well, this is the thing. I think now people are talking far more about the importance of sleep. Before it was always about eating a good diet and it was about exercising mm. and things like that. Now people are understanding that sleep is the key to so many things. We think about that a lot. I, I always sort of think about like the health movement. It kind of started maybe like in the 80s with gym, you know, Gold's Gym and like... My my mum used to watch these Kalanetics videos. I used to do that with Callum <laughs> yeah, Pinkney. Exactly. Yeah, that's how I'm old sort of I am. I was seeing them and just sort of thought like five. But, uh, and then it sort of came about diet and your sort of green smoothie breakfast stuff. And, and then with Ariana Huffington, I think sleep, people started to realise it's something you can sleep better mm. as opposed to just like, I'm a good sleeper, I'm not a good sleeper, you mm. know. And I think it's suddenly become very topical. So you realised that there was a gap in the market in some way, shape or form and that everybody needs to sleep. So, Emily, when did you realise that a bike could be a safer thing to ride? Take us back to the beginning of your story. Um, I'm not nearly as qualified as, as Yash to start a company. Um, I started off at Oxford reading physics and then dropped out to go and do product design in Brighton, which ended up being much more fun and a much better decision. So you just went and off? And I designed it. was my final year project at Brighton. Um, having never been on a bike as an adult, I decided to cycle the UK for charity. So I bought a bike, literally learned to ride the thing, like learned to take hands off handlebars and reach a bottle of water without falling off, which I did a few times, and then cycled a thousand miles. And I've pretty much been on a bike every day since. But the week that that ride finished was the same week my final year of product design started. And I became obsessed that I wanted to do something for city cyclists and obsessed that I wanted to find the biggest problem, which is safety. It's the biggest worry for people who do cycle mm -hmm. and it's the biggest barrier for people who don't. I am the person who has the barrier. I just cannot imagine cycling in London. We are recording this podcast in London. I now go on those Mo bikes. But I'm blimey, really? Yeah. Oh, she's anti a Mo bike. <laughs> what is a Mo It's an app, and they're the Chinese, orange. the Chinese um, dockless bikes. But I get the feeling that you're not very keen on my choices, Emily, by the look on your face. Tell me more. Well, I, the Santander cycles are pretty good. Is that because you're working for oh, them? we do work with them, <laughs> yeah, yeah. We've just done their new bike. So they have Santander cycles, previously known as a Boris bike. They have revolutionised the way that people can move across cities, haven't they? They have, and I think in London, in the UK, we think of cycling as a sport. You think of somebody getting togged up in Lycra and going out for a time trial at the weekend. But actually, it's a great way to get across the city. It's, it's cheaper, it's faster, it's more efficient, it's more environmental, it's happier, it's just better. And the Boris bikes, Santander cycles, 
it's kind of encouraged people who, that modal shift of getting off the tube and actually getting on a bike. So when you said that you wanted to do something for people who cycle in cities and the first thing was safety, had you experienced something that made you think, this is not safe or I need to be safer? Was there was there a turning point? Well, it was, that year was of my first year cycling and, and kind of realising that I'd spent the whole summer cycling the length of the UK and loved it, but the thought of going in the city was terrifying and scary and dangerous. But you didn't get knocked off uh, your bike or anything like that in a city? No, no, no. no. What about... What it about... was the research of the stats. It was looking to the data, which is... Gotcha. And there's one statistic which still amazes me, that 79% of cyclists that are involved in an accident are travelling straight ahead and somebody else turns into them. Right. So that's when we all know which is the blind spot. A vehicle just in front of you turns across your path. And the second one, a vehicle pulls out of a junction in front of you. So what have you done to help somebody like me cycle more safely? So our first product is called Laser Light, and that tackles the blind spot, that exact situation, by projecting the symbol of a bike about 20 feet on the ground in front of you. So imagine being a bus driver mm -hmm. and you've got a bike back in your blind spot that you can't see. Yeah. You see this green picture of a bike on the road in front of you before you see the cyclist. I've seen the pictures. It is really bright and very clearly a bike. Yeah. So if every bike was fitted with these, it would become second nature for any driver to do that little glance and go, oh, bike coming. Yeah, and you see, it's, 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 it's a daft idea, but it's kind of, it's a symbol of a bike on the ground moving and you kind of see it and you haven't got to know what it is. You just see it and think, oh, where's that? What's that coming from? Yeah. And you turn and look. And so the most people, obvious... Do people kind of get what it is, do you think? Or does it just makes them look a bit more closely? People, I think, do get, a, get what it is, but it's, even if they don't, it stops them. So <laughs> things like, if you imagine a pedestrian yeah. looking down at their phone, the headphones in about to step off a pavement, and they suddenly see that on the ground, they stop, they don't step out. That's so what we need them to do. It's so, so brilliant and clever. But how did you come up with it? So we were thinking about that, that exact problem, the, the threats in front of you, vehicles ahead of you turning across your path, biking around town and thinking about it and realising that a white van just in front of me couldn't see me and if he suddenly swung, I'd be in trouble. So I wished I had a, you know, a virtual me travelling through traffic to, to alert him. And at first, that was the kind of the weaker, clichéd, naff kind of aha moment. Um... But the first idea was to be a hologram, a 3D hologram, actually travelling here. Technology's ah. not quite there. But will we eventually maybe have a 3D hologram in front of us? I'm not sure. So how long did it take for you both to get your products ready for market? So, Yash, let me come to you first. You, you realise that there is not enough attention being paid to people having mattresses and that mattresses could be um, not only lucrative, but you're helping people too, aren't you? I hope so, yeah. I mean, look, we, we spent three years with our previous business developing the product. So I guess it was only then, after that three-year period of constant iteration, that we, we felt a product that we could sort of go out and raise money on and really scale. But what's nice about us, we don't really hold any stock, and so we're able to iterate on it pretty consistently. So we're on our seventh version of the EVE now, and we, we use user feedback combined with sort of reviews and things like new technologies that we work on to constantly improve it. So I think it's it's never really the case that it's it's sort of done. It, actually, there's quite a lot of technology, weirdly, in mattresses, and we just constantly iterate and try and improve it. This is a, a memory foam mattress, or is it not necessarily? It is, yeah. It's it's a memory foam mattress, but we, we actually found... like So when we started, we said, what is the biggest, most popular mattress brand in the world? And we looked at Tempur-Pedic, who sell a really expensive product for a few thousand pounds, and we found we could, for about a third of the price 
uh, do a similar spec product by going direct to consumer. But what we found with the Tempest spec mattress is you get two common complaints. One is that it's quite a hot surface because yes. you sink in. And the second is it's not bouncy and good for nocturnal activities. So, uh, so we spent a lot of time putting sort of cooling technologies and also much springier foams. So although it's memory foam, we call it new generation memory foam because it's actually quite a different feel to traditional memory foam. And I think that's the thing that has probably made it so successful. What was your, um, your marketing line when that first came out? Do you know this? Yeah. Or, uh, it was uh, a premium mattress at a third of the price. Someone's going to lose their temper as a little... <laughs> fingers up to temper the, the big the big mattress goes. how did you know that I didn't I heard it somewhere I okay. liked it Very, okay. I, li- I like that you know all this um, I always call it tempura like vegetable tempura I've always pronounced it like that don't laugh I have because I've never actually heard anyone say it but you know that's one of the interesting things I mean they're probably the biggest mattress brand in the world and a lot of people call them tempura you know a lot of people so and, and, and it just goes to show how little branding that has been in the category if you go to their website you sort of feel like you're on the nhs or something it's all postural alignment and back pain and we just we just thought inherently it's such a lame category mattresses but it's it's such an interesting one you could do such interesting stuff and i think from a brand perspective the most interesting thing we did was um, my cousin and co-founder kuba came up with this line so, so you said you know mattresses for recovery but actually we see it a bit more the other way around so mattresses to give you the energy to go cycling yeah. and so that was just me being you know a little bit yeah i know cute. trying to be funny. trying to be cute I know, trying to I be it. cute trying to be funny <laughs> just nearly worked you know but um but the um but we saw sort of started with this idea of every great day starts the night before and actually thinking about a mattress as not an end of the day product but a sort of beginning of the day product and that sort of great feeling of waking up energized and ready to take on the day you know and I think that just puts in a very different category to what traditional mattress companies so you flipped their the marketing. whole script in a sense didn't yeah, you? yeah I think as a brand it was very disruptive in terms of how how that industry had traditionally looked. And um, presumably there are different sizes, but are there also different densities of an Eve Sleep mattress? Until about two days ago, we only had one product in multiple sizes, but we just launched a slightly lower spec product because... I guess we wanted to be affordable for more people, you know, so we've just launched a product that's slightly cheaper, similar spec, but just despect effectively. And um, Emily, before you came in, I was saying one of the things that a lot of people think about when they live in cities, if they're going to buy a new bed, is how they get rid of the old one and the old mattress. And so for me, because I just want everything easily, if a company said, oh, we'll take your old bed away or we'll take your old mattress away, I'm in. And then you pointed out that, yes, you could offer that service, but it's slightly different, isn't it? What did you tell me? We do offer it. It's just that because we deliver compressed in a box, um, it comes on the courier network, uh, one-man delivery. But to pick up an old mattress, you have to do two-man delivery because obviously it's unboxed. So it's just a bit fiddly because people have to be there both to receive a mattress and then to, to get rid of their, their other one. You told me something even more interesting there. Well, we love it when, when, when they ask us to take the old one because it reduces our return rate because obviously once people have one, it's sort of harder to... If, if you don't have your old one, it's harder to send back the new one, you know? So. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> my uh, my co-founder has gone through a, kind of a cycle of quite a few the online mattress companies. Oh, really? Yeah. Really? Has he gone through an Eve yet? Uh, he yes he has. What yeah. the hell's wrong? Has with he kept it? It's, his first, it's his first one, and now now I think he's probably going to get back to it. Ah, he's been smart guy. Well, <laughs> so you addressed an issue in terms of the market for sleep, and you did the same for um, cyclists and people with bikes. But Emily, your your business doesn't stop at the laser light in front of you. Can you also explain how that laser light is generated? Talk us through the actual product. 
Um, get geeky at you for a second. Yeah, please. So the laser mint isn't a laser pointer, like it kind of, um, you know, you have in a classroom, it's a DPSS, which is a diode pump solid state laser. It's like, it was basically developed for Pika projectors in mobile phones with the thought that every phone will have a projector like a, has a camera. Mm. Um, and they spent millions and millions of yen developing this very tiny little laser technology with then no application because people don't actually want projectors in their phones. So the unit cost was quite low, but it was cost a fortune when they first got hold of it as a technology. Right. And it's only now, after four years, finally come to a price which is we can sort of play with a bit more. So, so we'll be launching four new products this year and similar kind of a, at a lower price point. So right now, if I want one of your lights, how much is it going to cost me and where do I get it? From us at blaze.cc. We're in all the Evans bicycle stores as well and Halfords and a few other stores, but blaze.cc and it's £125. We've got the burner, which is a backlight, also a front light. Uh, we're launching four new lights later this year. And then if you haven't got a bike, then you can get on a Santander cycle. So Santander have bought what from you so far? So the first time round, they got they bought just the laser technology. TFL did a lot of testing to prove it's effective before they put it in the bikes. Is it on all the Santander bikes now? Yeah. When did that happen? So about a year and a half ago was the first the full huh. fleet. So the first the first lot of bikes we did. The, just the laser, which is built into the bike, powered by the dynamo, comes on automatically when the bike is moving. I was darkness. just about to ask, is it automatic? And the new bikes are just launched. Um, and for that, we've done lights, laser, GPS, Bluetooth, sensors, all the technology on board. And that's also a big part of the business going forward is basically making bikes smart. So we now have a platform of technology that we put in city bikes all around the world. We connect them and we also have a, the back end of, of data on the bikes, where they're going, what they're doing, asset management. So for aspiring entrepreneurs listening to this podcast, would either of you say that you need to be that product expert from the beginning or is it something that you can actually learn along the way? Maybe seeing the opportunity is the most important thing. Yash? In all of the businesses I've been involved in, they weren't really product experts who were running them, I would say. So Zalando was started by two really smart young guys who had no background in clothing, and they built a £12 billion company. The guys, when we did Groupon, none of us had any experience of laser hair removal or sort of spa days, you know. <laughs> so, um, so, so I think you can definitely build a business without being a product expert, but I'm sure there are businesses that are more technical maybe like yours that it massively helps so I don't I don't know really but for me for me I would say it's not it's not crucial. Emily? I think it helped me in the beginning just because it was a technical product so my physics background certainly I could speak a bit of the language and I had I made the first prototype in the metal workshops at uni but now obviously you've got an amazing design team that do all of that but I, I mean like I love the products. I get totally overexcited by the products. And when the new renders come in or the new designs or prototypes, like I'm like a small child. So um, that's my kind of my passion in the company. And getting a cosign from the public to prove concept was something that helped accelerate Blaze's initial development. And that happened with a Kickstarter campaign in the early years. Tell us a little bit about that. So we, we launched on Kickstarter the month Kickstarter came to the UK which was quite funny because the UK really didn't understand what Kickstarter was. No. It's quite a quite an American kind of mentality. Of, I can remember my kind of mum's friends kind of saying, so I'm not getting shares in your company, like, no, no. <laughs> and I'm not going to get a product for potentially months. Like, why, why would I give you money now? Like, <laughs> it's Kickstarter. Um, so that was, that was a success. Um, and then we launched our second product on Kickstarter. And I think for a first-time hardware entrepreneur, it's a fantastic platform to get your MVP, your minimal viable product out there before you start thinking 
tens, if not hundreds of thousands of pounds on tooling, manufacturing, um, working with distributors, retailers, and all the kind of, I mean, hardware is hard. It's also flipping expensive. And you prove demand. And you also get feedback, which is really, really valuable. And when you're making a physical object, um, the earlier you can get that feedback, the better. And in terms of getting and using publicity to then accelerate some of these products onto the market, how did that work for you, Emily, for Blaze? We've, I think, I mean, cycling is such a kind of popular talking subject. Mm. We've, we've, we've never really spent any money on PR and it's all been incoming, really. I think cycle safety is something people want to talk about. I think a radical innovation is something people want to talk about. You often see incremental, like a step on from something that's been done before. But if you start strapping lasers to bikes, that's, that's quite unusual. I don't know. We, we've, we've, we've been very lucky that we've, it's, we've had a bit of incoming interest. But it hasn't been something we've spent money on yet. Right. Yet, you say. What about, what about your publicity campaign? We've spent a lot of money. We also get a lot of organic stuff. When we started, we got a lot of press because there's always like you get a little bit of press when you raise money, I think, anyway. But companies that raise money often aren't very interesting to people. So there will be maybe like some SAP software or, you know, some like database management tool or something that no one really cares about because Match is such an everyday product. Mm. And because the brand was, I think, so engaging, we immediately got quite a lot of press off the back of our early funding. We do a lot of sort of work with lifestyle bloggers and, and, and sort of influencers. I hate the word, but with, with influencers. Um, I think, you know, it's interesting. I, I, th- I think cycling is such a community, you know, and, and maybe it's easier almost in that sense that it's more sleep is because it's such a private and passive act, effectively. There's not many communities where people go and just like chat like about their sleep. So it's sort of harder <laughs> so, to... So if you are choosing an influencer for an Eve Sleep mattress, I mean, are you allowed to tell me right now who you chose as influencers? Give us an example for people listening who you seek out and for what reasons yeah we have um both sort of high level and and lower levels we have a a sleep doctor called max kirsten we have a lady who wrote a book called christine who wrote a book called uh sleep like a boss which i always thought is quite a weird name because bosses don't sleep from from what i I can see so but um because of the whole every great day thing we work with uh for example rebecca campsell who's an, an athlete and just people who are sort of interesting and fit our brand but one of the things that we've had quite a lot of is user generated content so people Mm. get really fascinated by the idea that it comes in a box and they they sort of post videos. It's really weird of the of the unboxing. I the would. Yeah, I, I would too. And they um and they have like tens of thousands of views. We actually did when we first started. We were kind of wanted to show the process, and so we asked a friend of ours like, could you would you mind just doing like this little unboxing video for us? And mm-hmm. he's like, no one will see this, right? I'm like, nah, mate, literally no one's ever <laughs> going to see it. So we put it on YouTube. It's now got like a hundred thousand views, and it's the first thing that shows up. I don't know if he knows actually, but it's sort of so visible. Oh, that's great. <laughs> So what would your top tips be for someone who wants to go along a crowdfunding route? So I think so for the three reasons I think it's great. It's great for publicity, it's a global platform. I think it's great for feedback. I think it's great for proving demand. It's a lot of work. Mm. It is having, I mean, it's probably nothing quite like floating but and having quite the shareholders you have. But it's, I mean, many, many people who have who have an opinion and they're involved in your, in your company and it's it's wonderful because that's a, an amazing asset but at the same time while you're trying to manufacturing when you're trying to everything else and start a business it's a lot of work we had a kind of interesting inc- incident when our last product halfway through the kickstarter our manufacturing partners actually went bankrupt which when you're on a kind of platform the whole nature of which is to be transparent and we you know i sent out these great big long updates kind of way too much information but it's you want to bring you want to bring them along for the for the journey mm-hmm. um, but when you actually a supplier is 
you, I, we li- legally couldn't talk about it. We legally couldn't say that we think they're about to go into bankruptcy. So that like, is kind of it's um you're opening the door to a lot of people into your company, which you just need to be aware of before you you open it. But I mean, you did due diligence and everything necessary. You can't help something like that happening. We chose them because they're in the UK, yeah. so we could literally just get on the motorway and go and see them, kind of you know once, twice, three times a week, right? Um, rather than our other partners who are in Asia. But yeah, you, you just can't predict these things. This is business. These so happen. can you go to sleep on a night like that when something like that happens? No. Well, that's because you haven't got an Eve sleep bed, <laughs> obviously. Yes, yeah, we've returned to I think this both theme. of you guys get on your phones and start ordering. <laughs> yeah, get us the box. Um, so Have you got a bike? <laughs> no, I don't. I don't. Otherwise, I would be buying one of your lights straight away. Well, I, I, we should mention that the Voom competition itself has its own partnership with Crowdfunder. So there's a great opportunity to start your crowdfunding process with Voom. And if you want more information on that, just head to virginmediabusiness.co.uk slash Voom. And, Yash, the profile of Eve mattresses grew incredibly quickly. And considering that you don't have your own bricks and mortar in terms of stores, how did you manage to get so many people talking about it? What was the key to that publicity, do you think? Well, we talked a little about the sort of user-generated content. We do a lot of friend referral stuff, which has been surprisingly... um, So there's a company called Mention Me. They do one of the biggest friend referral schemes in the UK. We just won an award with them as their sort of biggest partner because so many people do friend recommendation. But I think... The tipping point for us in terms of awareness, I think, came when we started to run our tube campaign. We ran this sort of long copy tube ad. I don't know if you ever saw it. They were quite cute sort of uh, just little stories that we wrote about the the product on the tubes. And they got still to this day. We ran that at the end of 2015. And still to this day, that's where most people say to me they heard from us. What, what was interesting to me about marketing is it's when you hear about marketing when you're younger, you sort of think of madmen and just sort of people sitting around having big creative ideas and, you know, but actually it's incredibly sort of analytical and then there's a lot of data and it's very easy to see where users come from, what they yeah. spend, what you make on them. So there's a creative side to it, but there's also a very, like I say, analytic and data driven part to it. So I think you can figure this stuff out yourself is the truth, a lot of it, but you know, hiring good people is good, obviously talking with anyone you know who might sort of point you in the right direction. But generally speaking, I mean, I think you just have to figure stuff out yourself. You know, you can go for meet some people and chat, but in Mm. the end, I think... It's down to you. Yeah, I think so. I think, yeah, just on that, okay. I spent my first kind of year, two years, utterly terrified um, and kind of constantly questioning, is this the right way? Is that the right way? I've never had a job before, let alone started a business and manufactured and marketed and done all the things that we're doing. Like, who can I ask to find out this is the right way? And ultimately... It took me a while to realise it, but there's so many ways. There's so many ways to skin a small cat or creature or whatever it is that you're <laughs> trying to get there. But by picking a route and going for it, you mm. will learn so much more by, by doing that than worrying about it or trying to think about it too much. Good advice. On the subject of marketing and capturing the public's minds with a product or service... One man who knows all about that is former Voom winner Toby McCartney, founder of Macreba. Our Voom reporter Chris Reed caught up with him recently to discuss the Voom effect since winning the competition and to get some top tips for those wanting to get involved this year. Toby from Macreba. It's almost a couple of years since you won the Voom competition and uh, Virgin Media Business Voom is going on again. What I'd like to find out really is what impact it's had on your business, actually how you were feeling this time two years ago 
and what next for, for McReba. But can, can we start, because most people won't know of McReba, what is the business that you founded and, uh, and, and what's happening to it now? Yeah, well, essentially what we do is we take waste plastics, the rubbish that you and I throw away, we use that waste plastic after it's been pelletized to replace bitumen in an asphalt mix. So it's nice and simple. The design of our business is aimed around solving or helping to solve two world problems. The problems with the waste plastic epidemic on one side and on the other. The problems that we all have with our potholes and the quality of our roads that we drive on. So you're helping to build better, longer lasting, more sustainable roads. That's it. Yes, essentially. That's, that's exciting, isn't it? Really exciting. Well, it's, it's, <laughs> I know it's a fantastic business. I know you won Voom in 2016. Yeah, um, yeah. Looking, looking back to, to that time when you entered Voom, what were your expectations of the, of the competition? To be honest, I had no expectations of it. It was a friend of mine that said, you should enter this competition. They'd heard that I, I quite fancied Richard Branson back then. You fancied um, just, Richard Branson? Yeah, don't tell my wife. But um, to be honest, I'd never heard of it. And uh, I went online and, and found out how to do it, produce a video, and, and off we went. So I really didn't expect anything from it other than we're in this competition. And I thought... The worst that could happen is we get a lot of exposure from it. And, well, it was far better than that in the end. And you went on to, to win it, to uh, uh, be top of the category. And yeah. uh, and since then, you know, what's happened to Mariba? I mean, how far along were you with the business when you entered Voom, when you won Voom? And, and tell me about the business now. Well, before Voom, in fact, even um, at the finals of Voom, we hadn't actually laid any roads. So we, it was just an idea, just a concept. Of course, shortly after Voom, um, within the first week, we had to get, get our asphalt down onto the roads. So the first roads went down straight after Voom and the publicity from there was phenomenal. So we played a lot of catch up, to be honest. It was it was a good six months of, of trying to, you know, find our feet and actually work on the business that we'd pitched to to Richard Branson and the Voom competition. Uh, so we had to make it reality from there. So it was, um, but before that, it was it was just an idea. But now you've had funding from celebrity tennis players, right. you know, a massive valuation for the business, and and international. I mean, global global expansion. Yeah. Um, but you know, where, where are you off to? You know, what what are the plans for Mariba? Yeah, well, I'm I'm here in London at the moment. Um, so on on Monday, I I fly out to Dubai, and then I've got Abu Dhabi the day after, and then I'm over in Bahrain. And, and are I'm, these just to talk to people, or are you actually putting roads? Yeah, down? these are for roads going down. Um, last week we got nine roads down in Turkey. Um, we've got roads down in Australia, New Zealand, all the way over in the states, um, and obviously, of course, the. The, the UK as well. So it's um, it's gone bizarre. It's gone nuts. I was looking at my email just before this interview. We're getting an email in every two minutes. And these emails are coming in from Indonesia, all over Asia, um, all over the States. Um, it's manic. Fantastic. Well, I mean, great for you. It's a, I mean, it's such such a, you know, a timely business, I think, um, especially the, the last week, we've heard so much about waste plastic, uh, yeah. decisions to, to ban straws and things like that. But um, I guess you were ahead of that curve. Yeah, well, it was uh, the the Blue Planet piece that came out that really helped us out. You know, BBC stuff and a lot of the marketing that came from Voom that really kicked it all off and and it got us in front of the people that we needed to see. And then from there, with those videos, they just went viral. I was looking at a video this morning, one that I hadn't seen before. Seventy three million people had seen that video, and it was all about Macriba, all about our business. 
Fantastic. There are, for listeners here who want to, to find out a bit more, the BBC have done a fantastic package on you. I think George Tacky did one as well. That's right, yes. Uh, yeah. and, uh, and there's no doubt others in, in all sorts of languages. But yeah. uh, a really fascinating story about how you take waste plastics, waste bottles, and actually turn them into something that everyone needs, which is uh, which is safer roads. Yeah. So, Toby, you touched there on viral videos. Um, one of the things that the Voom competition is really keen on is how to encourage entrants to publicise their entries and to get votes. After all, the first round is a public voting competition. What experience did you have and what advice would you give to, to businesses looking to publicise their entry into Voom? Yeah, I, I think the main thing for us was the video that we produced. It was, I think, 90 seconds in, in total was that that first video. And um, we used a sort of an animation in there. So we made it quite fun. You know, what we wanted to do was take what is relatively complex, really, when you you know, most people just see a road, but actually there's a lot that goes into a road and a lot that goes into waste plastics and the recycling of those plastics. We wanted to make it so simple so that everybody could just watch it and understand what the business is within 90 seconds. So I think that the main thing for, for businesses to focus on that are entering Voom, focus on that video. The simpler it is, the the better and the more votes that you'll get from that. We use LinkedIn a lot, so we went out to our potential clients to the asphalt manufacturing industries, to the oil industry, and we said, here we are, we've got this idea, here's our video, and uh, from there, I think we got to number six on the um, on the top. The leaderboard. Uh, yeah, the leaderboard, so it was a long old slog, though. I, I've got to be honest, you've, you've got to, we use social media a lot, so it was sticking with the social media every day, promoting that video, getting it out there to as many people as we could. And um, did did some of that publicity itself help to generate leads as well as votes? Yeah, it did. It wasn't just for the for the Voom. It was, um, we, we then went out for finance shortly after the Voom win and we used the same videos and the same people that had voted for us. We went back out to that client base to to say, well, here we are, you voted for us, now will you invest in us? And it was great. We worked out that in order to be able to make the product that we need we need to invest a certain amount of money and at the time we were still self-investing so we were running out of money individually as well so we thought we're going to have to find a way we knew nothing about crowdfunding we knew nothing about going to see venture capitalists nothing really about finance so we um we sat down and we said right how much would this particular machine cost or these machines cost in order to quicken up our process um, at the time, we needed 590000 which for us, thinking back then, that was a lot of money. But anyway, we decided in the end to go down the, the cedars, down the crowdfunding route, um, and go back out to the crowd that had voted for us in the first place. We went for 590 and they told us, you've got 60 days to raise 590000 And I remember thinking, I don't know if we can do that. You know, that's a, yeah. that's a massive task. Uh, within five days, we got the 590. Five days. Um, in five days. Um, and then we, we went out, we, we, we kept the, the seed running, we kept the crowdfunding running. And um, in the end, we got 1.3 million. And uh, we used that money to invest in, in machinery, but also to start the or the beginnings of, of what is now our subsidiary model, where we go out to the rest of the world and set up what we've got in the UK, but in places like Australia and Canada and the States. 
So you're a past master at Voom. McGreeber won it in 2016, mm. and you've been through the whole process. You know, we're at the situation now where lots of other businesses are thinking about entering or are entering or looking for votes. What advice would you have for them? What are, what, what are Toby's top tips if you could distill them down? Yeah, well, I think the initial round is making sure that video is is top notch. You know, use your time and in investment into that video. That's what will give uh, a little piece of you. That's what I think you're you're looking to do. I think many of our votes that came in in the initial rounds in 2016 were because it was Toby. Basically, it wasn't this fandangled business. It was Toby talking about his idea. And I think, um, you know, the the more that you can get to be that person that people actually like and, and want to invest their time by voting for you, the, the better. And I think the second thing, I, I think with the pitch, when I think about it from a public speaking aspect, it wasn't the best pitch that I've, I've, I've ever done. But the one thing that I think I did that I, I kept is it was just me. And it was my stories true to the words. You know, it was... Um, and so I keep think, it personal. Keep it really personal. Yeah, I think um, I think people like Richard Branson. I think they like that. They've they've heard many many pitches before. And for companies who who are in two minds at the moment, is it worth entering? Is it worth going out to to get the votes? You know, they're listening to you. You've won it. Of course, you're gonna you're bound to say yes. But uh, but what was your experience of the competition before you'd won it? Yeah, it was phenomenal. I, I think you know as well as just it being a competition, it really got our ducks in order, if you like. We we had to get things sorted for the next round of the competition. Um, when we entered, we had we had no clue that we would win it. We that wasn't even our target. We just thought it will help push us to getting things in order so that we can we can progress with our business. And I think anyone with a passion for their business, and if you, if they don't have a passion in the business, they shouldn't be entering, but anyone with a passion for what it is that they've got with a cause of some sort, they've got to enter because I think it's um, it's their duty as entrepreneurs to, to make sure as many people as possible know about it. If that's the worst case scenario, they happen not to win it, the worst case scenario is everybody's going to know about it and that's what you're looking to do initially when you start a company. Thanks to Toby McCartney and Chris Reed. And if you want to hear more about McCreeba's story, head to virginmediabusiness.co.uk slash voom, where if you're interested in signing up for this year's voom competition, you'll also find everything you need to know. Whilst the public vote has already opened, there's still time to sign up. Give it a try. As Toby mentioned, there's loads to gain, even if you don't win. Back in the studio now with Yesh Bagniewski and Emily Brooke. So following our discussion on marketing and getting initial publicity, the next thing I wanted to talk about was becoming investable because both of you have not only won the hearts of the public and the consumer, but you've found significant investment. So at what point did you feel that taking investment was the route to go? Emily, let me come to you first. We've, we've raised about £9 million. We did a kind of very early friends and family round, a seed round, a couple of seed rounds, took a bit of VC money and more recently a Series A. But we started off, I think, as actually a family friend who had an office opposite our first offices, which wasn't really an office. I had a laptop on my knees in a kind of like <laughs> professional squatting building. But he, we go for coffee and he'd kind of say, you should take some money, you should take some, you should take some investment. And I remember saying, I don't, I don't want any money. I don't know what, I want to prove myself first. 
And um, at this point, I had an intern. I then realised I should at some point probably pay. Yeah. And he could have said, well, fine, if I give you, if I wrote you a cheque for X at a valuation of, of Y, would you take it? And I kind of thought, well, wow, yeah. Who is definitely. this friend? He's a family friend, a banker. How brilliant. Our first investor. And it kind of, that was the first kind of... And then a couple of other people said, well, hang on a minute, if, if Simon's investing, right. you want to invest. That's just got the ball rolling. And then... Um, it's been fantastic. So it started with better pay the intern and then it goes and grows and grows. Yeah. What about you, Yash? When did you first think, right, investment? We The, the previous mattress thing we ran was bootstrapped and it's quite interesting comparing them. You sort of get pros and cons, I think, of taking funding and not. I think what was really noticeable about that one is we had complete free reigns to whatever we wanted. I was running it mostly from Santa Cruz in the US, so surfing every day and then just kind of, you know, one of my buddies was in Costa Rica, so it was kind of... Oh, nice. uh, So that was great, you know, and it was very much a lifestyle business. But you start getting frustrated that you can't invest in things. We never had money really for marketing. Mm. We couldn't hire the sort of level of people that we wanted to hire. So everything was really coming from us. And, and it was great, you know. But after having done that for a few years, we decided we wanted to build something bigger and really go for something that gets, I don't know, maybe gets a bit more recognition and gets, we were sort of excited about building a brand and sort of being recognized a bit for it. So uh, so we, we started raising money for Eve from the, the minute we had the the idea to do it really so before we had a website before we had a name anything and, oh. and by the time we had sort of cash in the bank we had just got our website live so how do you choose a name by the way how did you choose eve sleep i wanted to call it because we only did one product at the time i wanted to call it one and my co-founders thought that was too generic so I started just Googling how you say one in other languages. And in Greek, it was Eva. So I just thought Eve is kind of a cool name. And it just you started sort of hearing it everywhere. I found out Richard Branson's mum was called Eve and Steve uh, Jobs' daughter was called Eve. And there's uh, all Adam and Eve thing. And it's just it's such a beautiful name. One of my favourite movies is all about Eve. And at the same time, Cuba came up with this Every Great Day Starts the Night Before line, of which the first three letters are Eve. And it just all kind of like, just kind of fit together quite wow. nicely. You know? Yeah. Serendipitous. I would like some top tips uh, on how you made yourselves investable for people listening who need to seek investment. Any thoughts on that? I think I think for us there was a lot of luck. There's always kind of naive optimism and dogged determination. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, I really knew that I believed in the business, I believed in the future, I believed in the vision and what I was trying to build and had this kind of slightly arrogant mentality of if you want to be part of it, then then you need to play by our rules kind of thing. And And I think... When you say arrogant, then I mean, is well, I backed it. I backed the business. Mm. I backed us. I knew we were going to be building something of value. So if somebody wants to come along and be a part of that, then maybe it's um, confidence, not not arrogance. Yeah, confidence probably yeah. better. Fine. But I mean, confidence would attract confidence. confidence yeah, wouldn't it? confidence is the right word. And I think it's very important to believe in what you're doing. Yeah. What if, What are your tips then, Yes? Um, the the reasons we were able to do it, firstly, we sort of knew the invest. I had been introduced to a lot of the the investors in London through Mark Samuel, who's the oldest of these three brothers. Uh, so we sort of had a hot introduction from him saying you should work with these guys, they're good. Then we had sort of a bit of background in mattresses, a lot of background in e-commerce, and I think just quite a good set of CVs on, on what we were trying to do. And finally, for us, what was important was that this business, or the category of mattresses, had been going massive changes in the US with a number of big brands emerging and sort of very quickly shifting online. And so people sort of took a bet on us for those reasons. But I mean, ultimately, what makes it easier is if you have some numbers to back it up. I think in, we were quite lucky in, in that we didn't yet have that. But normally I think people ex invest partly based on the numbers that you have as a business. But of course, all this stuff Emily said is true as well. I mean, you can't 
you can't sort of meekly go in there and go, yeah, I think it might work. You know, you have to go, I'm going to fucking nail this, basically, yeah. you know. Um, in the time that you've set up your businesses, both of you, what would you say has been one of the challenges or problems that you're most proud of getting over? Or perhaps you haven't got over, you're still working on it. Tell us a story about something that you've dealt with. Yeah, I got a funny one. Yes, come on. Um, so firstly, what, what I find about being an entrepreneur is I love, I love it when stuff seems impossible and it can't be done. And one of the early stories that we had is when we did these Groupon deals, we ended up in like 25,000 matches in about three months and no one could, could make them fast enough. So we found these like slightly cowboy manufacturers out in Blackburn and they would... They were manufacturing through the night on 24-hour shifts to to get the mattresses made. And eventually the neighbours started complaining that the factory was running all night. And they kept asking them, the council kept asking, can you stop there? Like, yeah, yeah, sure, kept going, kept going. And and what they did is just to, to, to end it, they, the council eventually started signing them out of the factory at 6 p.m. and bolting the doors with chains. And what these jokers did is they dug a tunnel under the back <laughs> of the factory and they would drive around, they're sort of like, you know, say goodnight to the council guy, sign the thing, whatever, drive around. And in the dark, they just kept manufacturing through the night. And, and that's how we sort of fulfill that early stuff. And Did always you just, know about this then? Yeah, of course. We were there making the plan with them how to do it. And I just, I, I always, that always just stuck in my mind that there's always a, a way to do it. You know? Although we cannot possibly endorse anything illegal, I do admire the entrepreneurial spirit there. Yeah. <laughs> Emily, do you have anything like a story? Don't, don't, don't like that, no. <laughs> or one that I could share. <laughs> uh, um, two quick questions before we finish today. What are you most proud of in terms of your business journey so far, Emily? My team. My team. I love them. Everybody in that office. Yes, what about you? I think our brand, you know, I remember when we started, uh, I remember being in this cafe with Cooper and this girl coming up to him who he knew saying, oh, hey, like, what, what are you working on now that you left Channel 4? And he said, I'm starting up this online mattress thing. And she literally just turned around and walked off. <laughs> um, and just slowly over time, you know, it's really great now. People say, oh, I do this mattress thing. And people say, oh, what is it? And we say, oh, oh. Eve, the yellow one. And people just sort of know it, you know. And yeah. so that's really a huge source of pride. And, and we always had this vision with Kuba of like these like little sort of the postman turning up with all your little Eve boxes, you know, the sheets and the pillow. And the, and there's just something really beautiful about that, you know. So I think that, and obviously the, the team as well. <laughs> Afterthought for him. Did you, <laughs> did you notice that? And um, what's the next challenge that you're excited about taking on or the problem that you need to solve or innovate, Emily? Oh, ours is we've just got a, we've got a small team and we've got a lot going on. So we've got a consumer side of the business. We sell consumer products and we're launching new ones this year. We've also got the OEM part of the business. We put tech into fleets of bikes and bike manufacturers and a whole kind of back-end technology play that we're, we're kind of going into both feet first. So we do a lot and it's trying to kind of balance resources and, and energy across that. And keeping all the cyclists safe across the world. Uh, what about you, Yash? We're similar I and mean, we have we do so much you know we in the last year we've gone into 10 new countries we've launched a whole load of new products we've we just keep pushing ourselves outside our comfort zones and it's you know it's quite that that's sort of just quite an exhausting process to do and just to keep yourself constantly hungry and pushing and 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 just going harder really so so I think I think that just growing it scaling internationally you know well, may you both go from strength to strength. And it's been great to have you in the Voom studio today. For people listening, uh, where can we follow you both or your companies? Twitter, Instagram, what would it be? Um, Blaze.cc, I think it's the, the best place for me. 
I'm not on any social media, and to be honest, I don't even know our company ones. So I, I guess the <laughs> website, yeah, evematchress.co.uk. Um, Yash Bagniewski and Emily Brooke, thank you so very much for doing the podcast today. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's all for this episode, but the Voom podcast will be back in two weeks' time. In the meantime, remember, you can head to virginmediabusiness.co.uk slash Voom to enter the competition. And for more podcasts, entrepreneurial articles, tips and advice, there's loads over at virgin.com too. And you can get in touch with us by tweeting at Virgin and use the hashtag Voom. Until next time, from me, Nikki Bady, goodbye. Goodbye.